0: I didn't really think about the idea of starting a company. I didn't think that I could start a company. You know, I'd worked at these amazing tech companies and seen these really successful CEOs. And I just like had it in my mind that these were just like other
1: classes. Like these are other people. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in the weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest, by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders. Welcome back. This is
2: Ledge. Thanks for showing up for another episode of Leaders of B2B. Today, my guest is Dion Nicholas. Dion, I would love if you would give an introduction of yourself and your work for the audience who doesn't know you yet.
0: Absolutely. Ledge, so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm Dion Nicholas. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Forethought. and We are the generative AI suite for customer support automation and I promise we were around before the Gen AI hype recently. We launched in 2018, uh, actually, at, at TechCrunch Disrupt, which was super exciting. And since then, we've grown to working with high growth companies like Instacart, Marriott, many others to power their customer service using AI. Prior to starting Forethought, I was a, a software engineer and an AI researcher at University of Waterloo, as well as Silicon Valley based companies like Facebook, Palantir, and Pure Storage. So yeah, excited to be here.
2: That was the first thing that popped into my head looking at it. Like, y'all have been doing this since 2017, 2018. And I think you won disrupt, isn't that right? Yeah. So you left that out, but I'm gonna give props. So yeah. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. No, that was uh, it was super cool. I still remember that day. It was uh, kind of a blur, but a dream come true in many that's, ways. That's awesome. That's awesome. And yeah, the whole thing, like I just want to be like, just cut to the chase. Is it like super annoying when the whole like zeitgeist catches up with what you knew already and you're just like, dudes, we've been doing this for five years. Yeah, we know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it was good and bad. I think we went through five stages of grief for some variation of that because at first we're like, yeah, it was like, this isn't new, everyone. Like Gen AI has been around, GPT even, you're right, GPT2 has been around since what, 2019. Get with the program, everyone. And then eventually we were like, but wait, how does this actually change our business now? How does this change the market, right? And eventually we popped out, skipping the stages, we popped out to acceptance. But the real punchline here is one, demand went way up. A lot of people who we had previously been banging on their doors saying, Mm -hmm. hey, you need AI for your customer support, started to flip. And they started banging on our door saying, hey, we need AI for customer support. So I think that was really good. But also, yes, at the same time, I think this space has gotten really noisy. There are a lot of folks who cropped up in the last two or three months, slapped GPT on a label somewhere and said, hey, we're an AI company. And so from the practitioner side on the B2B leader side, it has gotten, I think, a lot harder to understand, Okay, what's real in the space, what's not? And so I think there's
2: pros and cons to, to hype cycles. Right. So the world catching up. Yeah, I get that. And it must be, yeah, the noise, right? Like of just the number of emails I've gotten recently for like, oh Oh, yeah, yeah. you know, we can turn all your customer support chatbots and everything into AI. And and I'm sure you guys are like way ahead of that conversation. And you can just look at the logo bar on the site and be like, okay, this is in play at major places. What have you learned about this space, because I think everybody still has a little bit of that visceral sort of like, ew, I just want to talk to a human. And yet I'm a huge user of AI tools and when, you know, GPT now like to just, gosh, I'll just, I'll try anything with this stuff. So, you know, it's like, how do you talk to about this to make it like a really good additive thing? And it's not just the next version of, dare I say, Comcast support. Yeah, I think what we've learned in articulating to
0: business leaders about this space is that there have basically been two camps of AI, customer support automation companies, each with their own limitations. And our goal has been to transcend those limitations, so to speak. So the first camp that we're all talking about, given the the shout out to your internet service providers uh, of the world, first camp is chatbots, right? So the first wave has always been manual decision tree based automation based systems, right? And the word AI has been thrown around a lot, but in many ways it's not necessarily intelligent, but it's artificial. And those are all about just making it easy to make repetitive things, put them on auto. Right. And so what I mean by that is you have to hard code these rules into these chatbots saying if I see the word refund, go issue refund or go and take this action. And and I think for the past decade that has been the state of the art in this whole space. And look, they work. They can actually deflect issues. They can solve certain problems. But the problem is they're clunky as heck, right? (laughs) Like The user experience is the worst. We all know it. We all have our chatbot story of just having to deal with that. And so they give you this correctness and specificity at the risk and at the cost of that customer experience. And then for the B2B leaders who are implementing a lot of these things, it takes months often to deploy. You often have to hire teams of content or bot experts in order to build these, right? And that was that whole first wave. And so what's beautiful about T, GPT, the generative AI revolution, companies like Forethought, what we're seeing is that there's now been this shift where the human experience and that customer experience has been elevated, We've all gotten to play with ChatGPT. We've all typed in little jokes or write me this blog post or whatever. And it's very human. It's very almost empathetic right? and very natural and and delightful. And so what I think what's happened with GPT and the modern generative AI revolution is that bar for customer experience has gotten much higher, right? Now, the problem, as you kind of alluded to, Ledge, is that a lot of these companies, they just take large language models, off-the-shelf language models, and then just say, hey, turn your customer service into GPT, right? And the big problem with that, and you're probably going to guess it, is hallucination, right? These LLMs literally make stuff up. up. It's just like, well, did you know? Orders can be like,
2: it's just like, where do you want it to be?
0: (laughs) And LLMs in that sense are really powerful, creative tools, right? So let's say you're working in marketing or you're trying to come up with a new piece of content, it's okay for the AI to make stuff up and just go off on a limb, right? But if it's a customer service question, if it's finance question, healthcare question, you want your doctors or your customer service agents responding with the correct answer. You can't go off on a limb. And so with these modern kind of GPT or LLM bolt-ons, you get that human experience, but they're not built on your data. They don't know anything about your policies, and so they're gonna hallucinate. And so what we've learned is to be able to focus on, well, how can we bridge that gap? How can we get the correctness and the ability to solve problems for the customer while still having a human-centered experience? And so what we've done is we've built the only generative AI suite that's trained on your data. We ingest real past conversations from real customers and your best agents, learn exactly how they said that, use that to restrict, fine-tune, and augment the model, the generation model. And that produces something that's way more accurate while giving you the benefits of correctness, the benefits of that human experience. And by the way, for the leaders deploying this, a very fast time to value because it's all built on your data.
2: Right. And that training period, what's that like to go in? I mean, you got this massive, massive firms, right? And I imagine you got all different. Knowledge bases and uh, Google Drives, and uh, how about some PowerPoints? And yeah, oh, should we load in our history from whatever help desk? And there's probably a great deal of, dare I say, crap in that too. (laughs) Yeah, no, we were talking a, a bit earlier about our TechCrunch disrupt pitch. If you actually go back
0: and listen to that pitch, that was exactly the premise that we were built on, which was that all of the information you need in order to build a performant AI system is actually built and already scattered in these data silos. So if you could build, call it like a search engine or a retrieval system, excuse me, if you could build one of those, then you could take all that data, use that to train the AI, and then build something that's much more powerful. And so a lot of our architecture, a lot of our IP, a lot of our patents, ironically, are around the ability to take in all this data, sift through it, use AI to figure out Okay, separate the wheat from the chaff like this support ticket is irrelevant. This data is irrelevant. This confluence article is relevant. But hey, this policy doc is this support ticket is and so on. And we have probably dozens of connectors built into our system today that pull in all that information. And we use all of our IP to actually figure out how to train the model. So it's a messy, messy business, so to speak. But that being said, it also creates a moat when a lot of people talk about these modern LLM companies not really having a moat. And I think when you can build large-scale data systems that actually can work on businesses' real data and ingest that in 48 hours tops and create this performance system, you get something magical.
2: Yeah, it reminds me of early on whenever it was more big data before it was machine learning and then AI. But it was all that same thing. And I remember that all of these systems were useless unless you could have a really good data ingestion scheme. And the fact was that it was like three years of figuring out how to do ETL the right way. And it was like boring and awful, but finally you came to something, but it was that data transformation and ingestion that was the huge problem. After that, we all knew that if we had good data, we could make good stuff out of it.
0: Totally agreed.
2: So, okay. Talk to me about the journey from your, I think you said your basically your academic work then to startup. So things in the lab going to things in the real world with some stops of software engineering jobs along the way there. It looked like a big sort of either you had a plan, you know, when I'm looking at Dion's resume, you know, it's like I'm gonna do this someday and I'm just sitting on it and getting experience and meeting people, or what was that? the academic path to the sort of kitchen table. And finally, like we say, go and I'm a CEO. Yeah, no, great question. Yeah, I think like, you know, in
0: hindsight, you wrap it up in a bow and, and you're pitching on TechCrunch or whatever. You're like, yeah, of course, it's all part of the plan if anybody asks. Now. But it was a series of following my passion. So context, I grew up in, in inner city Toronto. Parents didn't have a lot of money. My dad, who's a mechanic, is always the tinkerer. right? And so he ended up putting together this computer. We had Windows 95, like back in the day. And so I always remember was on the computer and, and just exposed to tech a lot when I was younger, eventually learned to code. And that became my superpower. And I always married this idea of leveraging technology with solving problems. And for me, it was always just curiosity, passion projects and things like that throughout call it high school and, and into university and there were a couple different points in my life where I started to really just knock on the door of what is now natural language understanding and natural language processing. So high school I actually interned at the Alberta Machine Intelligence Institute, which is this AI lab based in Edmonton in Canada. And there I was exposed to AI for the first time. I was just like, what is this? It was machine learning at the time, supervised, like all of that. And I was just this lowly intern. But like, you know, you get exposed to some of these ideas. And then immediately after that, well, two things. One, my other kind of school job was in customer service at Shoppers Drug Mart, which is like the Canadian CVS, so to speak. So answering customer questions on the floor, answering customer calls, etc. So I had like started to, again, in hindsight, a lot of trends around NLP, AI, as well as being able to apply to answering customer questions. Like when you actually think about it, I was like, okay, yeah, it's probably no secret or no surprise that I started Forethought. But it took like, probably a decade after that, before I started realizing it, started getting super fascinated with AI, started getting super fascinated with how it can help people answer questions. I also, in school, being a math and computers guy, I was very bad at subjects like history. And so at the time, I was like, could this AI thing ingest your notebooks and your textbooks and your information and help answer questions about the French Revolution or whatever we were studying, right? And so there was this always this kind of side thread of, hey, can AI help me answer questions, help people answer questions? And the technology sucked back then. It was probably, what, 15 years ago, whatever it was, right? But then in university at Waterloo, where I went to school, also studied computer science in general, but continued to study AI. I actually ended up publishing a couple academic papers in unsupervised machine learning. And so this just thread just stayed with me. Left school, worked, came out to the Bay Area, worked at a bunch of Silicon Valley companies. So I was just working as a software engineer. I never thought I would be a CEO, but that kind of tinkerer's mind that I inherited, I've always thought about these things, built these things. I would take like online Coursera courses on natural language processing by Chris Manning, who's actually now ironically an advisor, and angel investor at Forethought right after I'd gotten to know him. And so it's just like this interesting path where I kept pushing and then kept asking questions and knocking on the door until eventually realizing there was going to be a big market here. Again, this idea of question answering both for myself, but eventually as I was more in kind of the B2B world, realizing that customers have these problems as well, Pure Storage, where I was at right before starting Forethought, was very well known or is very well known for their customer service. And so starting to see these things play out, I was like, there's definitely something here. So eventually left my job and started a company. But it wasn't like, yeah, in some senses, if anybody asks, yeah, it was all intended. But really, it was like this meandering of focusing on passions and realizing there's a problem
2: to be solved. Right, right. And then What was that space there? Because I've had this conversation a lot and I just, I'm so interested in that. I'm going to start a company and, you know, at some point it's maybe you and a partner or just somebody by yourself and you're like literally around the kitchen table proverbially or literally maybe, you know, juggling a kid or something like that. And I just think, what is that space? Because I remember the day I walked out of my first or my last real job and I did startups, right? And, but it was not well thought out. And now I look back I'm like, dude, that was totally nuts. What the hell was I thinking? Now I know better and I wish I could go back and do that same business again without wasting a million dollars. But I don't know. like, Tell that story because I think that people mistake that. And I hear some people be like, oh yeah, we did research together for market research for six years and we are totally prime." And other people are like, yeah, I don't know. I just thought it was time to buy a pencil and and sharpen it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it was a little
0: bit more, a little bit more of the latter for me. So (laughs) this was probably late 2016, 2017. I would say that year was my like, hey, am I going to go do this year? And so a few things happened in 2017. One, I still remember. So Stanford released the Stanford question answer data set, which was this really cool research data set where, you know, a lot of people were competing and building models around the question answering problem. So that was interesting. And like about in 2013-ish, the same thing happened in computer vision, right? Where data set, I think it was MNIST, the handwriting data set was dropped. And then a bunch of research was built around computer vision, handwriting recognition, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And now we see industries like self-driving cars, which are probably going to be trillion dollar industries. And so you can see this wave happening in many different fields in AI. And for me, because I had just been primed around this NLP revolution I've been thinking about for a decade plus like seeing these data sets start to come out and the research start to accelerate was one interesting factor for me. And again, I just started like tinkering with it, trying to build models and stuff like that. But you know, you can start to feel that this technology was way better than it was when I was back in school. And so there's something coming. So that was the one piece. But just more on the personal side. Yeah, it was super interesting. So here I am in 2017, by the way, My wife and I just had like a kid. So we have this like month old baby or whatever. So imagine me telling her that I'm going to quit my job and start a company. But I think what had happened was I started meeting a few people in the entrepreneurship world and in investing world. And this was through a few things just like, you know, the engineering community. I had also, again, I'm always building kind of projects and things like that. So I had actually released like some cool apps to the app store. Never really took off, but like things like that, like just for fun But just putting myself out there and starting to build and connect with entrepreneurs in the world, that was, I think, the big switch for me. Because prior to that point, I didn't really think about the idea of starting a company. I didn't think that I could start a company. You know, I'd worked at these amazing tech companies and seen these really successful CEOs like Drew Houston and Dropbox, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook, and so on. And I just like had it in my mind that these were just like other classes. Like these are other people. You know what I mean? Like this is not... wouldn't be a thing that I would do. It was just like, okay, those are CEOs, cool. And like, you just carry on. But what I think was happening was entrepreneurship in so many ways is just problem solving. And I had problem solving down. That was what I do every single day. But I didn't realize that it was actually not that big of a leap from that to entrepreneurship. And so started connecting with people, working on a few apps and ideas. And in that early phases of starting to think about this AI for whatever like it was just NLP broadly it was the the thing question answering broadly I ended up connecting with a couple of investors and actually y Combinator, a partner at Y Combinator and so it was super interesting they were like oh you have these cool ideas why don't you apply to Y Combinator and this was like I still remember it was like middle of 2017 or whatever and so I applied with some idea that was v negative one of a fourth thought didn't get in but I got an interview and it was so weird for me like I wasn't bummed I was like I was actually excited I was like, oh, if I can get an interview, that means I'm not a complete idiot. I'm like, maybe I can do this. And like, that was it. And so eventually then I like hunkered down. I was like, all right, I think I'm going to start a company. What is it going to be? And then I spent a few months thinking about it, incubating it, and convincing my friend, Sammy Ghosh, who we met as interns at Palantir a few years before, trying to convince him to jump ship and join me on this crazy quest. Anyway, long story short, ended up incorporating very late 2017, working in stealth for about six months, and then launching at TechCrunch Disrupt as forethought. And so that was that initial journey. So I think there's this weird switch that flips once you catch the startup bug and you realize, heck, this is possible. And I already had, I know there were problems to solve. So I think the two converging meant it was time to jump.
2: Yeah. It's interesting, that story of selling your friend, right? On, I've had similar circumstances. That's your first big sale. Right, it's not convince people that actually like me to come and jump on board with this. And was it your like charisma and vision? It was just good enough to gonna go. Okay, I think this works.
0: Yes, of course. Oh yeah, right. okay.
2: <laughs> just like you had a plan all along. Yeah. Okay, I, I'm understanding this. Yeah.
0: No, I yeah, I think Sammy and I have had had a great relationship for many years, and we've always had this kind of rapport where we would bounce ideas off each other. And it was thinking about AI. Sammy's a genius. He did his undergrad and master's at Harvard in computer science. I think he graduated at the literal top of his class, was one of the youngest machine learning engineers at LinkedIn before starting Forethought with me. And so we would just like bounce these AI ideas. I remember like prior to Forethought, he had a class project on something and he was like, Dion, let's work on this idea together. And so I helped him with the class project and stuff like that and got shout outs in his final project. It was anyway, so that was like our report. And so when it was time to be like, okay, let's do this for real. There was a little bit of like, wait, you're serious? (laughs) But also at the same time, it was a pretty natural progression. It still took a while because again, prior to us launching at Disrupt, I would say that was like the real, okay, this is real, this is it, we're live. But prior to that, it was just, we were in stealth. We were figuring a lot of things out. And so, yeah, I think I'm very grateful. I think that Sammy decided to sign up for the journey and it's been a fun one so
2: far. So th- I have to ask the stealth launch thing. Is that just what people say like later on? So it like they can just cover the sausage making or what is actually stealth? The short answer is a- absolutely yes.
0: But no, I mean, there's some benefits and like actually tactical benefits to that. What I mean is in the early days, you're following that lean startup playbook, right? If you've ever read that or, or seen the lean methodology by Steve Blank, and we were hyper-focused on two things, figuring out, so we had already figured out the models. I think prior to doing anything, while we were still in the tinkering phase, building models that could ingest text and then answer questions on it, even like in a very small scale, was like what we first did. We're like, de-risk the tech. Is it possible to do this kind of thing? Which is the modern version of generative AI or whatever. But like at the time, it was just, can you answer questions with AI? And that was our first kind of proof point. We used that to raise some money. So we did raise venture funding, a very small amount from K9 Ventures, Manu Kumar, who's on our board now and is just amazing. And so like that was our first milestone, was like get the models working, prove that it was, show it as a demo, get and raise a small amount of funding. And again, right, I'm, I'm a newborn, <laughs> so I'm like, all right, I probably have to be able to survive and, and all that at this point. But anyway, and then milestone two for us, again, was go to market, right? Figuring out, is there a real market here? Are there customers with a really strong pain point and problem that are willing to pay for this, that are willing to go to bat with their superiors and test out this tiny startup that nobody's ever heard of? And that became the kind of second milestone because we knew as engineers, ironically, that our biggest downfall would be that we would spend too much time in a lab. You know what I mean? Like we would just spend time on all of the fun technology stuff, which was really cool. All the research, So we had this kind of like this mantra, put customers first, became one of our values. And it was just like, let's focus on, is there a true problem here? And so we spent a lot of time in early 2018 trying to figure out who exactly was the persona, right? Customer support leaders, customer service leaders. Turns out there's actually operations departments within these big companies. And so it's not just customer service specifically, but customer support ops, little things like that. And we also have this grand vision that eventually we could apply this to HR, IT, and all these other things. So being able to de-risk and say no to a lot of those things so we could focus wholly on customer support was huge. Landing our first pilot customers was huge. And when we found out we were going to be launching on stage at TechCrunch Disrupt, we set our internal goal of we won't launch on stage unless we have five customer logos that are willing to be referenceable for us. And that was like our mission statement before disrupt. And so that whole period before any press or anything, we didn't announce any funding rounds. It was all about laser focus on proving that there was a problem to solve and a persona to solve it for. And then that last phase was like, all right, we're going, we're we're launching live at at TechCrunch Disrupt. And it felt like a nice bookending of that quote unquote stealth period. So I think there was actually some value in just focusing in that way before the clock starts (laughs) when you are a company that people have heard of. I
2: mean, that's exactly the way that you should think about it. And I think far too many Startups and founders spend incredible amount of time on technology and in the lab, like you said, and not on that go-to-market, get those initial paying or pilot or whatever, like your referenceable customers. And in fact, those things ought to probably be equal time and money. And you don't see that a lot. You see sort of a lot of these things. And now with the sort of explosion, you kind of go like, there's a lot of solutions, but I'm not sure they have the problem right. And You won't get anybody to pay for that. It's just cool. And I like playing with it, but (laughs) I don't know that it solves any problem that I'm willing to pay a great deal of money for. And like, it sounds like you did that well and you you did it intentionally. Where'd that come from as a couple of engineers? Because usually engineers get that raw. Yeah, no, exactly. I think
0: it was like probably out of paranoia or something like, (laughs) well, Again, I had seen just in my own app building and tinkering, I'd gone through a lot of that phase of building for building's sake, and that's just been my whole life. And so it was only when I started to realize, like, you got to solve problems for other people, did I actually take that leap and start becoming an entrepreneur? So I already started to see there's a shift in my own thinking when I was starting the company. But more specifically, to answer your question two things I did. One, because I didn't know what it meant to be a CEO, right? Like I was like, okay, you know, I was still making this emotional, psychological leap of like, entrepreneurship is problem solving in another way. I started listening to a bunch of interviews and just listening to anything I could by great entrepreneurs. So I would go back and listen to Mark Zuckerberg interviews and Drew Housen interviews and so on, but also startup founders, Eric Reese, Lean Startup. And I would read as much as I possibly could on how to build a company. And I started seeing a lot of these patterns around, look, distribution matters, go-to-market matters if you're not solving a problem. Just like by sheer, I, I would call it paranoia, but more just focus, realize that this lean startup methodology of prove that you have value, build MVPs, don't just build for the sake of building, but build to prove an experiment and then go from there. and re- A startup is a repeated experiment machine. That was starting to get baked into my head. And also because I had some experience meeting the Y Combinator folks, I Watched all the videos of YC Startup School and all of that, right? So like these were just, and you know, it's Paul Graham's build something people want. And so you start to see the patterns. And so I was like, okay, failure mode number one is not focusing on a problem people want. And that's the first way to die as a company. Okay, let's just avoid that for first and go on from there. And so it was like that iterative process that led me down the like prove that you have something people want mentality. Yeah,
2: and I think that's so important for anybody that's thinking about exploring any company. You know, you're just like, I'm going to start a small company. I'm going to start a big company, whatever idea you have. I would call it that almost like academic discipline of study. You know, I think it's really easy to behave like the pop entrepreneurial press. And like you can post the Paul Graham quote on your LinkedIn and never have read the book or watched the video or studied. And I think that discipline pays off a lot. I know that I wish... I did it. I did all that after blowing up a couple. And I was like, clearly, marketing is a thing and I should find out about it because I'm not doing it and there's not any money coming in. And, you know, so I definitely did chose the hardest path possible road and, and didn't study in time. And then I see that's valuable. So I, I think I would point that out in, in your story just for the, the listeners. Spend the discipline time, not just on your challenge or your problem set, but on just like your own development of learning things about how to run business. So. I love that. And second to last question, I'll say, talk about this CEO role and does it take you, like, I think you have 170 people or something now. So does it take you away a lot from like the distance to the technology and the problem solving? Do you miss the tech? Great question.
0: I would say the thing I always try to never lose is connectivity with customers. And the CEO role, ironically, like that's where you're supposed to be as plugged into the customers as possible. But going back to your point, there's always a push and pull, right? And, you know, as your company gets bigger, right, you think about things like vision setting and setting culture, hiring, creating exec team, like there's all this stuff you have to do, which is like necessary to build a company. And you kind of have to remember these little nuggets of like blocking time, whether it's a couple hours a week or half an hour a day of just like getting back to the basics. And so for me that's time with customers and I think that lends itself to the technology because you can hear and feel those problems back to day one, right? What is the problem that they're having that we can solve for them? And also a little bit on the go-to-market side and so you kind of straddle both. In terms of actually coding, weirdly enough, I don't miss it, which is like super weird. A lot of my friends are like, "Really?" And it's not because and I hack, you know, I get back in the ring every once in a while, like when we were launching support GPT, which is the name of our engine, the generative AI component of our engine, I was writing code, building prototypes and using those to like show to the team like, hey, this is possible and things like that. I even built a Chrome extension that our teammates could install to like spoof our own app because I was like, I was too lazy to go in and like actually make changes to the code base. But I was like, all right, with this little extension, you can see how our app, our own solve product, would change with a GPT enabled or a support GPT enabled engine. And that was like enough to like create the concept and convey ideas. And so I still hack every once in a while, but I think prototype quality code of being able to use code to just convey a vision. But what I think I realized I've loved the most about technology, about coding my whole life, and it wasn't actually coding itself, but again, it was that problem solving. That's the thing that I think has stuck with me. And so being able to say, all right, what is the single most critical problem for the business today? And spending the next one to three months on that and just getting immersed and then solving the problem, working with the team and doing that, that's actually my superpower, so to speak, right? And coding was one way to do that in the early days. But now it's, like you said, it can sometimes be a go-to-market challenge. Sometimes it is a product and you got to think radically new visions and launch support TPT and change the way the industry thinks. Sometimes it's, you know, we're thinking now about, Autonomous agents, which we think are actually going to be the future of generative AI um, and things like that, we open sourced AutoChain, which is this open source library to help you build autonomous agents. And then sometimes it's people and culture and thinking about how do you build the a community that scales? How do you build a culture that scales? And so on and so forth. And so I like to think about it as every three to six months, the primary constraint of the business changes. What is the one thing? preventing you from 2x, 10x, 3 whatever it is, 300x growth. And there's often that thing. And that's the most important thing for the business. And that's where the CEO should spend their time. That and then also building the best team in order to do that. And then lastly, never, ever lose sight
2: of spending as much time as possible with customers. Yeah, I love that. Thanks so much. Great insights. Before I let you go, I warned you before off my... So like I always ask the guests, okay, we've got a big audience here, leaders of B2B. And you are one of them. And you have a unique perspective and sets of experiences, and the, just the seat you're sitting in now. What should be on everybody's radar that you're aware of that maybe they aren't? One of the things I just talked about was this rise of what I think of as
0: autonomy instead of automation. And I mean, I'm, I'm immersed in this world every single day. So it's something that's really top of mind for me, but I think might be interesting for the audience, which is that what we used to call AI before was all about automation, it was all about rules. Think about like marketing automation technology and Keto and things like that, you could automate the emails, right? And that's automation. And similarly, in customer service or in any use case, you can get automation to do rote tasks. What I think is starting to happen, and, and I'm super excited about this, like for our industry, but in general, is what I call the rise of autonomy. You're now having AI that can go and take action on your behalf. Imagine in the future when you need to book your next haircut or whatever, and you don't even need to get on the phone or text somebody, your AI will go and do it for you. The same thing will happen on the B2B side, having an autonomous agent that can help train agents, go and take actions, fill out refunds. What I really am saying is the rise of AI that can go and take action on your behalf. I think that's going to happen in every industry. And what we're going to see is the same way there was a way from desktop to cloud, and we saw the sales forces of the world take over, so to speak, become $100 billion businesses. I think now there's going to be a way from system of record to systems of intelligence or systems of autonomy. It's going to be the new cloud. It's going to be the new internet. Right. And so I think that's something super powerful. And I'd be curious to see how folks are seeing that appear in their
2: businesses. Yeah, yeah absolutely. As long as it's not the military. Right. So we don't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great point. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's that's really interesting. Yeah. It makes me wonder as a sales expert, you know, hey, maybe it's just going to do my job for me and I just get to sit here like the little guy in the cart in Wally and just say, hey, so go close that deal for me. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> awesome. Dion, super fun to talk to you, man. I love what you've done. I love what you're doing. You know, for everybody wants to follow up, what channels would be good to do that on? Yeah, Ledge. So if anyone is
0: interested in Forethought and what we can do for your customer support team, go to www.forthought.ai. And particularly, we have support GPT. So, forththought.ai slash support GPT. If you want to connect with me, I am available on all the socials. So, LinkedIn is my tool of choice. And I'm just Dion Nicholas at LinkedIn. But you can also find me on Twitter, Threads, Insta, everywhere. And there I'm at Doji Dion, D O J I D E O N. Yeah, excited. Please get in touch. Thanks so much for coming out, Dion. I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Lodge. This was so much
1: fun. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations, we handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com.